Welcome to White Shores, the podcast for spiritual beings having a human experience. Let me invite you to walk once more beside me on White Shores to talk about the real meaning of life and the true power of what is unseen. Let's discuss dreams, intuition, manifesting, as above, so below, angels, afterlife, the science of consciousness, and other infinite possibilities within and all around you. I hope every episode informs, inspires, and illuminates. So, now the scene is set, allow the grey rain curtain of this world to roll back and all to turn to silver glass. Let's walk barefoot together on the gentle, glistening sands of white shores to see what mystery lies beyond the material. Thank you for arriving safely on White Shores, a far green country under a swift sunrise. I have a spectacular guest today with a spectacular name. And so often when I have wonderful, inspiring guests on White Shores, I get name envy because I want her her surname. She's called Rebecca Wildbear. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. But she's here because she is the author of Wild Yoga, a practice of initiation, veneration and advocacy for the earth. She is also the creator of a yoga practice called Wild Yoga. I can't wait to talk about this because I didn't think it was possible to be wild with yoga, but she's going to enlighten me. Anyway, Wild Yoga empowers individuals to tune into the mysteries that live within the earth community, dreams and their own wild nature so that they may live a life of creative service. And she's been leading wild yoga programs since 2007 and also guides other nature and soul programs through Animus Valley Institute. All right. Hello, Rebecca. Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. You. (laughs) It is. Now, I've got all sorts of questions for you about your book and about you. But first of all, that name, is it real? Is it your name? (laughs) It's real. It's, It's my legal name. And it's part of my mythic name, too. And I changed it to my legal name before I knew that it was part of my mythic name. So it was kind of an unconscious knowing early on. I mean, you would have to do what you're doing with a surname like that. It's almost like this is what you're being called to do. Heaven called your name. You cannot do anything but what you're doing with that surname. (laughs) But please tell me, for people who are new to you and don't know your work and your mission. Would you mind just sharing your origin story, how you ended up doing this, um, you know, what led you to it and where you are at at the point in your life today? Great. Uh, Well, there's one story from my book too about uh, wild bear. Uh, My grandfather is Swedish and uh, had the name Stromborn, um, B-J-O-R-N. He dropped the J when he came over, His, his parents did. And uh, it means river bear in Norse. So I always, um, or current bear, water bear. Uh, So I always, in my book, I think I said, uh, I'm not the first one in my family with the name wild bear. And um, in that cosmology, they believe sometimes the um, animal guides that guide our ancestors are the ones who come and guide us. And so 
Bear is one of my guides. I think I talk about that a lot in chapter four, um, the ferocity chapter, Bear, the ways that Bear really came to me. But um, it, it, I guess, you know, according to their name, it also was, was part of my grandfather's heritage too. Um, so, you know, where to begin, where did all of this start? Who knows what, maybe it began generations ago. Um, but what I know is that the wilderness and nature has always called me, even as a child, even growing up in a, in a suburban neighborhood and, um, kind of rarely getting the opportunity to be in the wild, um, when I visited my grandparents in a town in New Jersey that was a small town near the ocean in the Barnegat Bay that's now quite popular, but populated and city-like. But when I was younger, it was it was rural, and uh, some other places that we occasionally went to that were more wildernessy. But um, in my adult life, I joined summer camp and and guided for Outward Bound in my twenties. Um, so I I sort of immediately went to uh, work in nature, becoming a wilderness guide and a wilderness therapist, but also wanted a deeper connection because even um, wilderness therapy and wilderness guiding sometimes views nature as a, just a pleasant, pleasant black backdrop to be in. And uh, I felt like there was a, a deeper connection. As we know, indigenous peoples the worldwide have always had a deeper connection than just enjoying being in nature. So um, I studied with Animus Valley Institute, which uh, does a lot um, of work around encountering your soul, listening to dreams, and talking with nature, and having a conversation with the animate natural. What they would say, what we call the, what I call the animate natural world, uh, that the um, natural world is alive and sentient, a being we can have a relationship to and talk to. Uh, most of the time, humans have been alive on the planet. That's how they viewed nature. It's only the last few hundred years that. People have dropped that, and in in many ways, I think that's at the at the crux of the ecological crisis. And at the same time, I was also studying yoga. Um, I went to Costa Rica to study yoga with my teachers Don and Amba Stapleton at Nasar Yoga Institute, and I've studied a lot of other forms of yoga too. But since I've spent the most time um, with um, at Nasar Yoga Institute with Don and Amba, they originally studied Kripalu yoga, which is kind of a vinyasa flow yoga. Um, and Don is an art teacher, so always encouraged me to do it our own way, like to find our own yoga and the way our own body wants to move. So that, along with my conversation with nature, um, really out of that working there and having that kind of conversation with nature birthed the idea of wild yoga. Um, and the idea that uh, we can actually have a conversation with nature through our body. In other words, receive places, receive a sense of places, and communicate with places through the ways we move. I, I absolutely love this because, you know, obviously on, on White Shores, many of my guests um, practice yoga or teach it or want my listeners to engage with it. And many of my listeners I know are you know, immersed in the world of yoga. And it's always one of these things that I'm always on my to-do list and I'm drawn to it, but nothing has grabbed me quite like your book and that your approach to it. So if anyone's going to get me to do yoga, Rebecca, it's you. I love the way you connect it with nature in that way. It just, it, it seems so obvious, but it's not, is it? Because you're kind of like pioneering this. So, so well done. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, yoga has gone off a little bit on to, off its track from the original roots. Um, uh, yeah. The original yogis 
Uh, I think we're studying in caves and we're naming poses after animals and to try to recover their wild nature and connect with nature, which there was a lot of around at that time. And um, it's kind of become now a bit of like about the asana practice only. One of the things I say in my book is that yoga has always been meant to be about who we are and how to be in relationship with everything, you know, including the human world, including the spiritual world, the soul world, like how are we relating with everything and where is our place in all of that and who are we called to be? So my book definitely has a trajectory of yoga in that direction. Asana practice is included as as a branch on the tree, but it is a branch of a of a large tree that has a, a larger intention and purpose. Mm. So if someone was, you know, listening and thought, I'd like to do some wild yoga, Rebecca style, what would they expect from a class? Or I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you teach it online as well as in person. Yeah, if anybody wants to see, I, I have a website, RebeccaWildBear.com. And on the wild yoga page, there's a 20 minute video that you can do that's a demonstration of my practice. It's calling in the four directions of our wholeness through our body. But some pieces that you sh- that would be good to know with the reader is I definitely have an approach that is very welcoming to everybody. Sometimes yoga is like, well, you can only do it if you can do these poses or that poses, and if you can only do it this way. And I have studied a lot of approaches like that, and I do value um, the exact details of, of postures, and I see the importance of that. But my approach is quite different. It's a bit more about just bringing us into our bodies and meeting people where they are. So sometimes in my yoga classes, everybody's doing something different on their mat, not always the same thing because we all have different bodies. And the main teacher is our body. So we don't want to force anything or make anything happen that's not supposed to. It's really about listening and trying to open to the way our body wants to move. And the poses that I teach are in the hopes of getting you into a a relationship with your body where you can listen to what it wants. My yoga practice changes. Like if I have a very busy yang lifestyle, when I get onto the yoga mat, my body really just wants to be quiet and still and not move too much or have very gentle stretches. And, and if I've been, you know, pent up sitting around, then it wants to be, you know, often wants to move more. So the the key is really about listening. And I often do do, you know, vinyasa, but it's kind of a very slow, it's usually often very slow vinyasa. But I do change it and have a lot of variety depending on people. I try to find when I work with a group of people, the trajectory that is like the the way that we can travel together best on the journey through our bodies, but offer lots of options along the way to to go harder core if you, if that's what people want or to be gentler if that's what people's bodies are calling for. Thank you for for drawing attention to to the to the power of the body, and of course, I, I write a lot about intuition and precognition, and of course, our gut and our heart and our body are kind of intuitive receptors as well. I teach people to tune into their bodies to sense what's going on around them and to sense maybe the future. So, um, again, you're you're drawing attention to that in your yoga practice. So, thank you so much. Now, you also encourage your readers to listen and talk to nature. Could you just give an example uh, of how you would do that without people thinking she's lost the plot? <laughs> you know, going around talk. I sometimes want to talk to flowers and trees, and I, as I get older, I'm starting to do that. I need to be careful. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe go for it. You know, um, sometimes it, it can be about um, 
inviting our inner five-year-old. You know, sometimes our, our young child knows more than our adult self and wouldn't think twice about talking to trees or flowers and until we learn that we're not supposed to. I talked to trees before when I was very young, before I learned that, oh, that's not what you do. And so then it was latent for many years until I came back to it in my uh, adulthood. Um, but really a key aspect of talking to nature is imagination deep imagination. And that it's a practice that we had as a young child when we were allowed to be imaginative and play. But as an adult, we're told, well, this is real and this is not real. And, you know, sort of like thinking that mode of being is the most important, but sensing, feeling, and imagining are, are other ways of knowing. And when we open to those ways of knowing, we can play and maybe not try to decide too much if something's real or not until we find our way into it and see what happens. Normally, we can discover the conversation's real when we start um, hearing things or sensing things that are outside of what we know we would make up on our own. Mm, absolutely. Uh, fascinating. This is just so fascinating. And I, I, but I, but what I'm saying is if I, I do sometimes have the longing to talk to a tree or a plant, how do you do it in a way, I suppose you do it mentally, don't you? Because unfortunately, we live in a world, and especially in the UK, if I did that, it would people would be very concerned about me. And it's, it's so sad, isn't it? It, it, that is, we, it is sad. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that up. It's, it's um, you know, you can have a conversation with nature through your body, through your presence, through physical contact, through imagination. Um, so you don't, actually have to talk out loud. There's lots of, lots of ways to communicate besides words and verbal. But I do find that talking out loud sometimes is a powerful way because sometimes what, if we just stay in our mind, uh, it can get lost in lots of thoughts and we can lose track of what actually is the conversation. And speaking aloud is making a statement like, you're, you're here, I see you, and I'm willing to speak out loud. Sometimes it might mean trying to find a a quieter place to talk or a quieter, less busy time of the park to talk. I, I have a story in my book and I once encountered a man in India who I was doing an online course with and he lived in a city with like one huge tree that lived in the entire town, two blocks from his house. And uh, he passed it his whole life and didn't talk to it. And during the course we were doing, he, he did begin engaging with the tree and he found himself lost in a conversation and, and he was surprised that he could actually enter a moment when he wasn't concerned what people thought about because he normally that is, you know, all of our concern. Uh, but he started having this connection and it, it, it didn't matter to him. So in some ways, I think it's OK to, you know, to try to have a conversation out loud. Most of the time, I think sometimes people aren't really paying much attention to what we're doing because they're too busy worrying about what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Most people are more concerned about what's going on with them. And we, we, we waste too much energy worrying about what other people think. You are absolutely right. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned trees in your last um, anecdote there, because um, one of my favorite chapters in your book is Receive the Love of Trees. Can you tell us more about your love of trees and forests and how we can all sort of feel closer to them? Because I know that whenever I walk past a fallen tree or I see a tree being chopped down, I just feel sad. Yeah, great. Um, you know, it, it again bringing back to the young child of ourselves. Um, I uh, noticed 
I, I have always loved trees. And if I remember back to my childhood, I climbed them all the time. And it was kind of a place of safety and communing and feeling held. And sometimes when we do remember what, what and who it is we loved as a child in nature, that can actually bring us back to what's important to us as an adult. So for me, that remembering that connection in childhood enabled me to just kind of give in to something that's always been there, to put aside the mind that wants to stay working or busy or you know doing something else and say, no, this is actually valuable. Being with trees is valuable. It was when I was a child and it is now. And in fact, I can climb trees again, or even just wrap my arms around them, you know, when I'm, you know, on the ground, if, if they're not climbable or they're lower trees and commune or just lean my back against them. That looks very inconspicuous, right? Leaning my back against them, but I'm communing with them and feeling my back. I actually feel like the tree has my back and I feel held and like my heart is communicate communing with the heart of the tree and I can, com- you know, communicate or have a conversation that way. So I, I I allowed myself, my yoga, you could say, in my early 30s, a lot of was returning to trees, climbing them and being with them and listening to them and just having my body connected to them, just like I did as a child. And it taught me about love because, you know, humans, like you say, they have all these judgments and like, this is right and that is right and this is wrong and this is how you're supposed to act. And And trees really don't, I find. In their presence, I feel seen and held to my deeper self. And also, I feel like if I'm patient enough and willing to wait and stay in the conversation, they also reveal to me more about them. Oh, I do. The wisdom and love of trees. I hope you write a book about trees one day because I I actually, I just loved that chapter so much. Um, Thank you. And also, another thing I loved, I mean, I love lots of things about your book but again what spoke to me was your focus on dreams as well because a lot of my work is with dream decoding these days and you encourage your readers um to embody the dreams the mystery of their dreams and um but how could you explain how you think dreams should guide our lives and we're talking about nighttime dreams here as well as well as daydreams yeah exactly exactly Uh and um i uh you know i i think it starts with listening to them and so it's great that you do that work too cuz sometimes in our culture dreams aren't viewed as very important they're like an extracurricular activity if you have time but in most cultures you know that humans lived in you, you know a long time ago dreams were central and dreams decided things like who was elected like how we live our day they made practical and spiritual decisions and so Um, you know, trying to remember them is the first step and writing them down and writing them down. I work with people and encourage them to write it down in the present tense or encourage them to return to it and be with it. In many ways, if you've dreamt something in within the last couple of weeks, it's still happening in your psyche. And certain dreams happen in us for way longer than that. Certain dreams that are central to our lives. So we can return to them and be with their images in our imagination, we can embody characters, we can move characters, we can consider how do they see the world. So we're trying to learn with them in the same way we might learn from a tree or a mountain with the idea that maybe the beings in our dream or the landscapes have more insight intelligence than our human mind. And what would happen if I tried to take in their way of seeing? Oh, thank you, because I'm I'm also on a mission to mainstream dream power and bring it back to something that's really integral and important in our lives. 
um, you know, in, in every way, because when we fall asleep at night, our intuition goes to work on our behalf, trying to problem solve, bring us creativity and inspiration. And, and, and thank you also for, for having that empowering message. But we've got, we're in the nighttime theme at the moment, but you also think being comfortable with the dark, don't you? Losing our fear of the dark and praying in the dark or radical dreaming. You talk about that and how it can help and heal not just us, but the world. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, you know, you mentioned that dreams happen in the day and in the night and in the all times. One of the ways that we access the waking dream of life is again through our imagination. And one of the ways that we can be that the our imagination can really wake up is in the dark because there's a there's nothing else around us. A lot of times the dark can bring up our fears as well, which is okay because sitting in the dark sometimes you know it it unleashes things that live in the dark in us in the world. So it's a great place to receive visions. Um, and radical dreaming I wrote about because radical dreaming. Uh, sometimes dream work in our culture, again, if it's done at all, it's very focused on the individual. You know, what does this dream mean for me? What does this dream mean for my life? And I wanted to bring dreaming to a bigger context. I'm not the first person to do it. Uh, there's other people that have mentioned, um, um, Eisenstadt talks about archetypal dreaming for archetypal activism. And, um, but I think that this, the, the idea that we, we don't, we're in the middle of a lot of a crisis in our world as far as how do we go forward as a culture. There are some things that are very clear, like this culture is unsustainable as it presently is and is not going to last. But there's a lot of things that are unclear, like, well, how are we going to go about making the changes that we need to bring us into alignment with health? One of the premises of my book is that human health is impossible without Earth's health because we're linked. So to focus on human health by itself is is very, very limited. And so we need to think about um, the earth's health and our health together. And so part of looking at visioning for the future of our world, it includes that. And in a, in, in a similar way, dreaming does this too, that we're dreaming for ourselves, but also for the world. And we can ask particular questions of our dreams. Uh, you know, we can ask in this, it's been done before that people that artists and, and visionaries like that ask questions for their art but I'm bringing it to a different context. We can actually ask planetary questions like, how can we stop uh, ecocide? You know, what what is mine to do? How can I protect this particular wild place? And you know, what is the what is the action I should take? You know, so so if if we have people coming together and dreaming and visioning for the world and asking important questions, that can be a, a way of get, getting information and insight beyond what our human minds has come up with. And it can help us in our stuck place with more possibilities. Brilliant. Uh, collective dream power. Couldn't agree more. And, and also dreaming on behalf of someone else or, or the planet is a wonderful way to show the power of dream power, isn't it? Because often when people have their own dreams, they tend to go for the negative or, or get panicked by them. But if you're dreaming on behalf of someone else or the planet, you tend to have a more positive take on your dream decoding naturally. That's a really, really useful tip. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, you also encourage readers to, you know, embrace their tears, don't you? And times of hopelessness and despair in the book. Um, and you call it earth grief. Um, so, First of all, why is it important to embrace grief 
And is there any advice you have for those who are, you know, having a tough time right now, feeling lost, feeling alone, maybe suffering from bereavement and and loss? Yeah, you know, it's 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 a very hard grief is a hard thing, I think, in our culture in general. There's not a lot of places to be with it, especially communally. Um, traditionally, humans were with it in a communal way and invited it and allowed it and held each other. And there's not there's there's some places, but there's not a lot of that. It's not necessarily encouraged. We're encouraged to kind of hold it together and go back to work a lot of the times. Um, but our grief is a portal um, which can help us understand more about our heart. One of the things I say in the book too is that the numbness in our heart can be part of the the crisis and the problem as well, because our feelings are guide guidance. They're messages coming up either from our own bodies about things that want to change or adjust or be felt, or they could be earth grief, which are messages from the earth. Sometimes, again, in our culture, it's viewed as if we feel bad, then maybe we're doing something wrong and we need to fix it. But maybe if we feel bad, we're just sensitive and we're feeling something that needs to be felt, whether it's grief or, or trauma or loss from our own life, or it's earth grief. And it, it, it's important to be open to that grief and to allow it and, and to get support in that too with others in community. And to consider gr- that grief might be a kind of portal. When I talk a lot in my book about visioning and imagination, and we talk about the waking dream. Uh, sometimes our emotions, especially going into deep emotions like grief, can be such an altered state that it can be a place where visions and answers and possibilities arise. I believe that there are certain visions that can only come when our emotions are so turned on and highly charged and, and our hearts are so open. Mm, I mean, and bereavement, grief, disappointment, as tough as these things are, they are a great opportunity, aren't they, for growth and awakening? Um, and sometimes that can pull you through when you're feeling so low to know that you're shedding old skins and to just keep believing that this will pass. Um, thank you. Um, and moving on from grief to, to maybe not its opposite, but it's all a part of it. Love. You talk about being a love warrior. What, what, what is, what do you mean by that? I know what you mean, but I'd love you to describe it because you're so eloquent. I'd love to hear you describe it. Yeah, love warrior for the earth. I wanted to bring the words together because I feel like um, sometimes they're not understood together in our culture. You know, warrior is seen as not loving. It's seen as, uh, um, you know, like angry or fighting or, you know, just not being peaceful. And love is associated with a, a certain kind of way of being loving. There's a lot of ways to be loving. You know, there's uh, beautiful poetry and language and speaking. But I wanted to bring back the idea that being a warrior can be something that comes from a place of love. It's a lot of energy to fight something than to just go along with it. And it takes um, a lot of our heart and a lot of our passion. And sometimes even, you know, our fire, our anger is viewed as bad. But I wanted to bring back the idea. Sometimes, you know, warring and anger definitely is, you know, negative and and harmful and and hurtful and, and misplaced. Um, but sometimes our desire to fight for something that we love is absolutely right on. And in fact, it's one of the energies that I feel is missing in the world um, is that, w- you know, we're taught not to fight and not to have anger and not to be warriors. In past cultures, being a warrior was this honor that you studied for and you practiced and you learned. 
but there is a there's actually an art to it and it, it's not fighting about everything and it's not you know always allowing our anger to you know have its way with us but it's it's being strategic and being willing to take a stand for what we love and being willing to put ourselves on the line and um, I want to honor the people that do that all the time, especially for the earth. And there are so many people fighting for the earth. You know, there's people at different camps protecting trees, like the ones I write about in Canada, protecting the 3,000-year-old trees. I know people protecting um, places from lithium mines right now. And, of course, we know the indigenous peoples are all the worldwide are protecting most of the wild places we have left. But we're at a place in the world now where we know we only have so many wild places. And it's certainly a worthy fight to stand up for them and to find a way to stand up for them. And it's not always easy in a culture where we're not taught to be love warriors. So all the practices in my book are kind of building up to this because there's a lot about love and there's some about ferocity in chapter four and bringing that into the culmination of how can we bring this energy that all of this personal work that we're doing and all of these connections to these greater intelligences that we're making to the to our souls and to you know the earth that we're making them on the trajectory that we can not only just make our own lives you know a little bit better but to try to actually see what we can do for the larger planet and bring um, bring our fight and our love together and uh, be a love warrior. Oh, love it. Love it. Is this what you mean by wild eros? Is that what you're kind of, you know, the term you use in the book? Yeah, that's uh, that's the first chapter in the section Beloved World. And and that in wild eros is love. It's kind of a feeling our sensual, physical love for the world. And when we're coming back to giving our gifts to the world, you know, the journey, the book takes you through rewilding, wilding ourselves, part one, the holy longing, that's the spiritual and the soul journey. And then we have beloved world. That third part is about coming back to the world with our gifts. And the first chapter in that, before we get to love warrior is wild arrows. And that is bringing our full bodied love to the world because our, our offering to the world always is rooted in a place of our love for the world, even our sensual physical love. Thank you so much. I, it, I mean, I, I predict when people read your book, they're going to have quite a visceral reaction to it, which is, it's fantastic. The book kind of like seeps into your your bloodstream when you read it. It's 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 amazing. Well done, Rebecca. Huge congratulations. And for people who want to find out about you, maybe follow your work, take your classes, purchase your book. What's the best place for them to connect to you? Probably uh, my website, uh, Rebecca Wildbear, just my name, RebeccaWildbear.com. You can get in touch with me through there. There's the video. You can see what upcoming offerings I have. You can see some of my writings. You can log on to hear more about programs or to get ongoing writings. You can sign up for the email newsletter. Thank you. And uh, can people contact you? Do you are you on social media? I am on Facebook. I'm pretty. I kind of am pretty active on Facebook. I'm also in the process of uh, getting on the other social medias to advertise my book. But I'm most personally uh, active on Facebook. So you can friend me on Facebook. It's just so draining, isn't it? Because everybody says, "Are you on socials?" And you're just one platform. It's just, it's, and, and you get these sort of like stern messages from Facebook. You haven't posted for three days. <laughs> It is quite demanding, isn't it? You know, it's it's to sort of like have a distance from it because it can get quite overwhelming. And if you're on other platforms as well, will you go on TikTok? <laughs> yeah, I've never been on TikTok, but um, I might be yeah, somebody to help me out. But I, I um, I do, I am on social media a little bit, but I do limit my time on it, so not too much. I wouldn't have as much time for the wild, but I do try to. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, just. just 
time just disappears. You go into a sort of a twilight zone, don't you? But I think wild yoga would work great on TikTok, you know, the videos and and the way you do it. But anyway, (laughs) I'm going to get some help from somebody who's going to help me post some things on other medias so that um, I don't have to figure that out and uh, and, and other people can still learn about it. I tried that asking other people, but unfortunately it's kind of like it's your platform and people sort of want you that's the thing that's a good point so they, can, they can they can sense it I mean I, I think people on on social media are actually quite psychic they can sense when someone else is doing it they know they just know so sorry you're gonna have to do it but anyway as we as we draw this um uh beautiful interview to a close thank you from my heart and soul by the way it it, i i've really been inspired by it and i know my listeners will be is there something you want to leave listeners of white shores with either from the book or from a movie you've watched a song that you've watched a life-changing quote just something for them to reflect on that's kind of like recommended by you apart from your book of course (laughs) i would just say that um you know, the, the wild world, the earth is available to us and, uh, whoever we are, no matter how lonely we are or brokenhearted or, or hurt or disappointed, the earth is available to us. Um, even if we're in a city, there's a tree, there's grass, there's the stars, there's the sky, there's the wind, uh, there's something, there's some water to connect with, uh, and go to it. It's there. You know, humans are sometimes there and sometimes not. You know, humans work crazy lot, you know. Uh, we're, you know, we got so much going on in our, in, our, in our bodies, in our heads, ourselves. But the earth is really a healing, um, deep, loving presence. And um, it helps us connect with our bodies and everything else that I'm talking about. The dreams, the muse, the soul, the spirit, the journey. And the earth is there. So go out now today and find some way wherever you are to connect to listen, to reach out. Beautiful. And I can tell how busy you are because those notifications coming in, people listening, it's not my end. It's Rebecca. Things are not coming in my end. That's this lady. And she's understandably super busy with her wonderful new book coming out. And then the final question, you're not going to get away with it because this is White Shores after all, Lord of the Rings. Um, Have you read Lord of the Rings, watched it? Uh, Lord of the Rings, yeah, a a while ago I watched it and I think I read part of it. Everybody's read part of it, but we've watched the movies, haven't we? If there was a character in there, what? Who would you be, and why? And I hope you say what I hope you're going to say. <laughs> um, I, you know, I can't remember his name. Just describe it. Um, he was the main character in the movie with blue eyes, uh, dark hair. Oh, he, was, he was trying to find the ring, you know, and trying to get it from Frodo and, you know, trying to save the world, more or less, but on his journey. That's you know, I hope to get into today. It be Frodo. I was worried you might go for an Ent, which are the trees. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. The, you know, Greybeard the tree, he's wonderful. <laughs> he's a wonderful one, too. <laughs> you know, the trees that come alive. That's just amazing, isn't it? But anyway, we'll stop me raving about Lord of the Rings right now. Thank you from my heart and soul, Rebecca, for your precious time today. Thank you. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. It was really wonderful to meet with you. Thank you so much for having me on your show.
Thank you from my heart and soul for being here and walking beside me in spirit on white shores. Sensitive, kind, compassionate souls like you who see beyond the material are needed more than ever today to help this earth heal and evolve. If you have any questions, stories or insights to share, I absolutely love hearing from you and aim to reply to everyone in due course. My website is www.teresachung.com. My contact email is angeltalk710 at aol.com. And you can message me via my Instagram handle, the Teresa Chung, as well as my Facebook and Twitter author pages. Until we meet again on these white shores, keep being amazing spiritual you, sending my eternal love and gratitude.